This week's Parsha podcast is a bit of a throwback episode. Of course, we are in year eight of the Parsha podcast, and the theme has been, thus far, it's been dad, deep and deeper, to go behind the scenes, beneath the subtext of the Parsha, to see a bit deeper. But this week's Parsha podcast will be a throwback, a retro episode. It's going to be more in the style of previous years. We're going to take a theme, a motif that is strung throughout the Parsha, and build an idea, concept, or or really a framework for how to live our lives to the fullest. This presentation was prepared for a very special Torah study session that we did last year in loving memory of our dear friend David Gedalia Ben Ephraim, the unforgettable Dr. David Jenikov, a dear friend of us all and a beacon for the Jewish people. And we had this class, this special class, this special presentation, and it was never released on the podcast. And I thought it would be valuable and helpful and interesting for you to hear it on the podcast. And as such, I want to dedicate our studies today in loving memory and Lilu Nishmas, David Gedali ben Ephraim, our dear friend, such a kind person, so brilliant, so accomplished, so generous, someone who leaves and still, we still feel it, the, the huge void that he left behind. And he himself dedicated a tremendous amount of time and focus and energy to studying Torah. May our studies today be in his merit. Of course, our thoughts are still in Israel. As of today, it seems like there's a deal, a hostage deal. And of course, that gets everyone very happy and excited that at least some of the hostages in Gaza will be returned to their families. Of course, it's going to result in a pause. And we hope that doesn't redound negatively towards the efforts. And Israel, of course, has to release way more prisoners than they get back. And of course, the people that they release are are terrorists, whereas the ones that they are getting back, the hostages that they are retrieving are innocent civilians. But hopefully this will resume the effort to root out this heinous criminal terrorist organization will continue. Hopefully, Israel will not bow to international pressure, which is, of course, mounting. And I will tell you that last night I recorded a Jewish history podcast on the other show, one of my other shows. It's the second in two weeks, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, we did an episode on the backstory of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And last night we released an episode on the Jewish History Podcast on hostage rescues and ransoms in Jewish history and law. So it might be a good time to check out, to revisit one of my other shows, the Jewish History Podcast, which was in a bit of a hibernation past couple of months, really years, I'm embarrassed to say. We didn't release uh, many new episodes, but we're out of hibernation due to the events of October 7th, and the war that has spawned. And please, God, will continue to do some more Jewish history podcasts that are germane, that are topical. But now, we're focusing on the Parsha. 
and it's a throwback style. It's retro, mid-century. We're going back to the 70s and the garish colors or the, the chic 80s or the, the super baggy 90s or the, the cringy aughts. It's Parsha's Vayetze. It's year eight of the Parsha podcast. We're in the Torch Center. It's retro style on the eve of Thanksgiving. So let's begin. I want to focus on the grand transformation that happens in the Parsha to our protagonist, Jacob, Yaakov, the forefather. He begins the Parsha leaving. He's departing. He is absconding. He's running away. Asaph wants to kill him. He justly takes the blessings. Asaph is out for blood, and Jacob flees. At the end of the parsha, Jacob comes back. So our story is almost like a self-contained narrative of Jacob from when he left until he came back. And specifically, I want to focus on a motif that appears several times in our parsha. And I want to use that to suggest a comprehensive game plan for how we, too, in our own self-contained worlds and universes, we, too, can achieve some level of transformation akin to that of Jacob, achieve a life of distinction like Jacob in our own way. So Jacob is fleeing from his brother Asaph. Asaph wants to kill him in retaliation for him usurping the blessings. And Isaac sends him to Haran, and Rebekah encourages him to go to Haran. And he's there for two reasons, to wait out his brother's wrath and to find a wife from Laban's daughters, which will turn out to be a bit trickier than expected. Along the way, he makes a memorable pit stop in Jerusalem on Temple Mount. That's where the Binding of Isaac episode happened. That is, of course, a very special place. And Jacob stopped there to pray for success in his journey. And it's nightfall, and he goes to sleep after placing some stones around his head. And he has a very consequential dream. He sees the ladder rooted on the ground, but the top of the ladder, the head of the ladder, reaches to the heavens. And there are angels, some going up and some descending. And God appears and gives him an incredible blessing. I will give you and your descendants the land. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. You will proliferate in every direction. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. And God continues, I'll be with you. I'll guard you. I'll bring you back here. I will not abandon you. This is a wonderful series of blessings that Jacob receives. And he wakes up and he is pleased to discover that those stones that he placed around his head have now fused into one stone and he anoints it with oil and he pledges himself to God and he continues his journey. And he arrives in Haran and he heads to the well and the well is inoperable. There's a massive stone covering the well and the shepherds are just idling about and they're waiting for a, su- a sufficient amount of se- shepherds to come to roll off the stone from the well. And while Jacob is engaging with the idling shepherds and he's asking them, why are you loafing around? Why aren't you doing your work? Rebecca comes 
She's a shepherdess. She's leading the sheep. And he sees her. And he single-handedly rolls off the stone that's atop the well and gives water to the sheep. He meets the family, spends a month with his cousins, and they strike a deal. Jacob will work as Laban's shepherd for seven years in exchange for the rights to marry Rachel, his younger daughter. And Jacob performs his duties with splendid dedication. But after seven years, Laban pulls a fast one and he replaces Leah as the bride instead of Rachel. And Jacob agrees to work for an additional seven years in exchange for the rights to marry Rachel. But this time, without any chicanery, he's going to marry her right away. This time, I want to be paid ahead of time. And the Parsha proceeds to detail the rapidly burgeoning family of Jacob. Ultimately, he marries, in addition to Rachel and to Leah, Billa and Zilpah, the handmaidens of Rachel and Leah. And he bears 12 children with his four wives, 11 sons and a daughter, Dina. After 14 years of working for Laban's daughters, he stays for an additional six years, this time working for pay. And things work out well for Jacob. He amasses a great fortune, much to the ire and consternation of his father-in-law Laban. And Jacob again decides to flee with his family, with his possessions. He flees, Laban pursues. They have a final standoff and ultimately amicably go their separate ways. Not until they erect a stone monument demarcating the boundaries between Jacob and Laban. I won't cross from this side. You won't cross from the other side. This is our DMZ. Jacob continues along his way and he heads back southwest to Israel, to Canaan, to square off against his brother, who still, after 34 years, is still fuming, still out for blood about the usurpation of the blessings many decades prior. That is the Parsha in a nutshell. It orients around Jacob. He's away from his home. And it chronicles his magnificent transformation. When the Parsha starts off, he is unmarried. He is penniless, we learn. He's 77 years old, Rashi calculates. And he's a fleeing refugee escaping from the wrath of Asaph. That's how the Parsha begins. At the Parsha's conclusion, Jacob is at the head of an empire. Twelve children, four wives. He is inordinately wealthy, and he's heading back. How did this happen? How did Jacob go from such humble beginnings at the onset of the Parsha to such grand meteoric success at the Parsha's conclusion. Now, it's important to note, this story, of course, is about Jacob, but really it is a model, it is a microcosm of our nation at large, but also us as individuals. Jacob is going to be named Israel. He represents the entire nation of Israel. And he goes into exile. He has to leave his homeland. He goes to a foreign land and he has to contend with very hostile overlords in the foreign land. And he has to navigate through immense challenges while in exile to emerge unscathed and to return home. It's a complete story of the cycle of exile. 
being tested, being pressured, having to navigate very tricky circumstances, and to emerge victorious, and to return triumphantly back to the land. This is the story of our nation in exile. It's one of ceaseless upheaval. We're banished from the land again and again, and we have hostile masters in the foreign lands. And Jacob is the poster boy to show us how to do it, how to flourish in exile. But truthfully, it's also instructive for us as individuals. Our life really is one of exile. It may sound a bit surprising to hear that, but of course we know that our soul originates from a very different world than the one we are currently inhabiting. Our soul comes from heaven, and here it is in exile. And we're here for 70 years, 80 years, and it's foreign, it's hostile. And like Jacob, our soul is trying to survive and trying to get back intact. What does Jacob say at the beginning of the Parsha? He prays. May I return peaceably to the house of my father. Jacob's chief concern is to return intact and unharmed. That is precisely the story of our soul. It covets to return to its home alive and well. And thus, the story of Jacob is really a microcosm and a macrocosm for us. It shows us a complete storyline of Jacob and exile, which is very instructive for us as a nation, but also for us as individuals. And thus, if we can deconstruct, if we can reverse engineer Jacob's rise to superstardom, we find a playbook. We have a game plan that we too can follow. So let's look at his story and let's see if we can find maybe a helpful motif to guide us as to how Jacob built his legacy and we can do the same. At three junctures in our Parsha, we see rocks. We see stones. At the very beginning of the Parsha, Jacob's alone. He's about to embark on this journey of, of a lifetime. He stops off in Temple Mount and he goes to sleep and he places stones around his head. In the morning, those stones are a single stone. They have fused into one overnight. And Jacob takes the stone and he anoints it with oil. He erects it as a monument and he really effectively dedicates it to be the cornerstone of the temple. At the beginning of Jacob's Odyssey, we see we see stones, stones that morph into a single stone that gets subsequently anointed. That's the first instance of rocks in our Parsha. Later on, Jacob arrives in Haran, he goes to the well, and there's a stone again. This immovable stone is perched atop the well, and there are three idling shepherds. They're waiting. And he's puzzled. Well, what are you waiting? And they say, well, we don't have enough manpower to dislodge the stone. We're waiting for reinforcements. But when Rachel arrives, Jacob is boosted with this supernatural strength, and he single-handedly removes the stone. Again, stones appear 
a second time. And finally, after 20 years of contending with Laban and all his deceptive trickery and chicanery, Jacob escapes. And a few days later, Laban pursues and they have a standoff. And after a tense exchange of words, they strike a pact. And they agree to a non-aggression treaty. And they erect a stone monument. And the verse tells us that Jacob took one stone, and then he instructed his brothers, which we discover later on in when we read Rashi, that's his his sons, you gather stones and they make a big pile, a big monument. And they have a feast. And Laban, he applies a name to this stone monument. He calls it Yigar Sahadusa. Which, it's a nice trivia question. It's one of the few non-Hebrew words in the Torah. And Jacob calls it gal Aid. Now, what is Yudar Sadus and Gal Eid? They both mean the same thing, one in Aramaic and one in Hebrew. Gal means a pile, like a pile of stones. Aid is testimony. It is a monument of testimony. And Laban gives it that name in Aramaic. Jacob does the same in Hebrew. So we have at the end of the story, Jacob is erecting a monument and he's asking his sons to help. And they bring multiple stones while he brings one stone Again, Jacob is engaging with stones, the third appearance of this recurring motif. He makes a monument of testimony to demarcate the borders between him and Laban. So what do we make of this motif? At three distinct stages of Jacob's grand transformation, we see stones. We see milestones. He starts off, he has nothing. He's, perhaps we could say, in the dreaming stages, in the planning phases. When Jacob's legacy is solely aspirational, we see stones. And then he arrives in Haran. He arrives to the trenches. And he begins to build, to get a wife, and to build a family, to build a legacy. And again, he is confronted with the stone atop the well. And after he wins, after he built a marvelous legacy, after he defeated and outfoxed his adversary, he erects a third stone, or he encounters, he engages with a third stone, the stone monument. If you think about it, Jacob's life, and perhaps every grand life, every lasting accomplishment, it has three stages. The planning stages. When you set out, when you embark on the vision, on the initiative to build something big. The execution stage when you actually do the work. And then there's the protecting stage. When you cement your legacy and you ensure that it endures. In each of these three Stages in our parsha, we see stones. And I think that when we study these three stages carefully, we can see a complete playbook for Jacob's ascent and his transformation. 
when the parsha begins and the first stones appear, Jacob is getting started. He's dreaming. And he takes several stones and he places them around his head. How many stones did Jacob place around his head? So there's a very interesting set of comments in the Midrash. According to one opinion in the Midrash, he selected 12 stones. Why 12? Jacob knew, as all the forefathers knew, that one of the founders of this nation will bear 12 sons that will go on to father, to spawn the 12 tribes of the nation. Abraham, he only had Isaac. Yeah, he had the other sons, but they don't count towards the legacy. Isaac had had only Jacob, Esau, he plays for a different team. Jacob wasn't sure if he's if he's going to follow that pattern or he will have the 12 sons from him. Says the Midrash, Jacob said, when he placed those 12 stones, he said, if they fuse together into one, that will indicate to me that it is my lot to father the 12 tribes. That's one opinion. The second opinion is that he took three stones. And that would symbolize Jacob's role as a patriarch on the same pantheon as Abraham and Isaac. Are there two founding fathers or are there three? Jacob says, I'm going to take out three to see if, in fact, I am on the same level as Abraham and Isaac. The third opinion says that, well, Jacob took two stones. And that was to symbolize his primacy over Abraham and Isaac. Unlike Abraham and Isaac, they each had a son that went awry. Jacob was determining with these stones that he'll have the perfection. There won't be the two directions. Those two stones will merge together. His children will all be on the same page. Now, without getting into the details of this Midrash, what we see absolutely clearly is that at the onset of Jacob's journey, the first interaction with stones, whether it's 12 or, or three or two, Jacob is aiming for the stars. He is not settling for any mediocrity. Either the 12 tribes, so he places 12 stones, or to be one of the patriarchs, he places three stones, or to be the only patriarch who doesn't have a son that goes awry, two stones emerge into one. The first thing we learn from Jacob's storyline is that in the planning phase, in the dreaming phase, you don't dream for small things. Dream big, very, very, very big. He wakes up in the morning and he finds that the stones, whether it was 12 or three or two, they fused into a single stone. 
And Jacob does something interesting with that stone. He anoints it with oil. That's the process of consecration. And he lays it as a foundation stone for the temple that will be built on this site. Now, again, at this juncture, Jacob is a bachelor. And he's a 77-year-old bachelor. And in his planning stages, he is already thinking about a temple built on this site by the descendants of the great nation that he will spawn. At the very beginning of Jacob's journey, he's already thinking about the absolute, ultimate, end, really, and climax of Jacob's legacy. If you do the math, we know that sometime later, Solomon, in fact, did build a temple on the very same location where Jacob had his nocturnal prophecy. How long later was that? By my math, it's 743 years from this moment until Solomon actually builds the temple on this spot. Again, Jacob is single, he's penniless, and he's 77 years old, yet he's he's praying, and he's installing the foundation stone upon which the temple, really the second temple as well, and even the third temple, will be built. So when he's in the dreaming stage, he's dreaming both very big and very long term. And finally, he dreams with conviction when he wakes up. He has such a feeling of assurity in the success of his mission, he's already anointing the stone. He's already erecting a monument at the very onset of his odyssey. It seems like Jacob has big plans, very ambitious plans, and he's very confident. In the dreaming stage, Jacob dreamt big, dreamt long-term, and had a degree of unflinching conviction. Another point. Where did these stones come from? So the commentaries, listen to this. The commentaries say something astonishing. There was a previous stone monument on this site. This is the same site where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice in the Binding of Isaac episode. Abraham built an altar. Abraham assembled stones upon which he placed the wood and eventually Isaac. Those same stones are part of Jacob's storyline here. He takes those same stones, the commentaries tell us, and upon that, he dedicates his future plan. Jacob doesn't arrive and exist in a vacuum. His edifice is going to be built upon the sacrifices and the great achievements of his antecedents. When he starts his journey, he very much is cognizant that he is standing on the shoulders of giants. This is the first prong 
of Jacob's journey. He's just getting started and he's dreaming, dreaming big and long-term with irrational conviction. But he recognizes where he comes from. He recognizes that his legacy will be based on the sacrifices of his illustrious forebears. This is the planning stage. Next, we read about the stone atop the well. If you think about it, this is a very different type of stone. The previous stone, it was stones emerged into one, and Jacob wanted it. It's going to be used to build the temple. And he anointed it, and he consecrated it as the foundation stone of the temple. In the second stage, the stone is serving a very different role. It's blockading what he wants. He wants the water. He wants the water in the well. But the well is covered. There's an obstacle. There's an impediment. And that's the stone. So this raises an interesting notion. And that is the symbolism of a stone. On one hand, we see how it is part of Jacob's legacy. It's something to anoint, something to serve as a foundation of the temple. Something to serve as the foundation of the manifestation of God in the world. In the second instance, it appears to be an impediment, an obstacle, something which is blockading your path. Something which is corking up the well that needs to be removed. There's perhaps a very deep idea here. The symbolism of stones are really both of these options. When the Talmud talks about the multidimensional nature of the Yetzirah, it tells us that it has seven names. The Yetzirah is the fourth that we have to overcome. We have to defeat. It's what's preventing us from achieving our destiny or greatness. And it has seven dimensions, and each dimension is another name. And one of the names is Evan. It's a lave Evan. It is a heart made of stone. It's a stone. A stone is an impediment. It's impeding our access to the wellsprings of life, of vitality, of greatness that lie beneath it. But what happens when someone overcomes the Yetzirah, overcomes the stone, removes the stone, shatters the stone, rolls it off the wellsprings? That same stone can serve as a foundation of a person's legacy. The verse tells us, Kapatich yipotzeitz sela. It's talking about Torah. Torah is like a hammer shattering a stone. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to point out that in two places, the Talmud derives this verse in two seemingly different ways. In one, it's describing it as how you address the Yetzirah. And it tells us you're supposed to shatter it like a hammer and blast it to smithereens. The second opinion tells us, or the second 
interpretation of this verse is that the, the study of Torah is multidimensional and it's like taking a hammer and shattering a stone. And just as the, the stone would shatter into so many different directions, so too Torah study is multidimensional. So in one, it's a positive thing. In the other, it's, it's, it's almost like the elimination of a negative. And this gets to an idea that's really a foundational principle. We've mentioned it many times. The impediment stone and the legacy stone are always going to mirror each other. We have a Yetzahara. It's a bad inclination. The Midrash says that when God said, Behold, I saw everything that he made, or God saw everything he made, and behold, it was good, it was exceedingly good. Tov ma'od, tov tov. When it says good, it's a reference to the good inclination. Me'od. Very, 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 very good. That's the Yetzirah. Ultimately, Yetzirah is good because it helps us build our legacy. Those challenges are given to us with the express purpose of having us overcome those challenges and thereby advance our spiritual agenda. These challenges are specifically designed and positioned in a way that should we overcome them, should we triumph over them, they will serve as our legacy. How do you unlock your potential? How do you build your legacy? By finding the cork, the stone blockading it. And actually when you finish it, that same stone will serve as the foundation of the edifice of your legacy. The degree of a person's potential is directly commensurate with the size of their challenges of the stone, so to speak, blockading the wellspring. The bigger the well, the more enriching the well, the more vital and powerful and transformational the well, the larger the stone covering it will be. When there's a massive wellspring of immense potential, it invariably will be capped with a similarly sized massive stone. The greater a person is, the Talmud tells us, the more potential they have, the greater the Yetzirah. Our, our greatest mitzvah, the Brismila, where we forge an unbreakable bond with God. It's in a very specific location, the, the area where the Yetzirah is perhaps strongest, and an area where we can get sidetracked into a life of hedonism. These are always going to match each other. Specifically in areas where we are destined for greatness, that's where the stone is largest. So we have a second stone in our story. This is in the building phase, in the execution phase. You have a big plan, you have a really big plan. It's going to have a really, really big stone preventing you from it, but really facilitating that. Because if there's no stone, there's no resistance. If there are no weights, the muscles will not swell. Jacob gets to the well, and he wants to begin his work. And there are some other shepherds, and they're not even trying. They're loafing about. They're so convinced that they cannot remove the stone. And they're just idling about, waiting for someone else to come and and do the work for them. 
Some people will succumb to the impediment, but not Jacob. How does Jacob relate to the stone? It's an amazing thing. The verse tells us, Jacob sees and behold, there is a well in the field. And Jacob tells the shepherds, what are you waiting for? Why aren't you watering your sheep? I don't, I don't get it. Why are you loafing about? Now, Jacob's incredulity doesn't really make any sense. There is a very large stone. It's too big for only a couple of shepherds to remove. Does Jacob not see the stone? There's a very deep point over here. How did Jacob work? How did he build his legacy? How did he navigate those challenges? How did he view those stones, the impediments of his dreams? Everyone else, all they see are the obstacles. They see the stone and they don't even try. Jacob sees the opportunity. He sees the well. They see the well, we cannot advance any further. Jacob doesn't get disenchanted, doesn't get depressed, doesn't give up before he even starts. Of course, he knows there's a massive stone atop the well. That's not what he sees. He sees the well. He sees the opportunity. So after dreaming big and dreaming with a long-term plan and with conviction, he starts to work and he barrels through whatever obstacles lie in his path. And his determination and conviction may him see only the wellsprings. The stone is just something that you have to remove, the cork you have to remove. Jacob, of course, he did see this, the stone, but he understood that every well is covered by a stone. All beginnings are going to be difficult. And that's the critical difference between Jacob and the shepherds. He understood that if you take responsibility, if you take on a very large responsibility, if you bite off a lot, that will necessarily result in God giving you more capacity to do it. And they thought they were incapable of it. And by golly, they were right. They were stymied by the stone. Jacob says, no, 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 there's a big stone. Okay, it must be that we have the capacity to achieve it. And he rolls off the stone by himself. He built and he kept on building. There's another, I think, important wrinkle over here. We often think that we have to go outside of ourselves to find greatness. This model of Jacob and the stone atop the well, I think it shows us a different structure. What Jacob really did was just simply remove the inhibitors. Jacob understood that there's a well there. There's a well in the field. All that greatness is already within you. The real legacy, the real movement that we make, the real progress that we make is simply by unearthing that which was always within us 
yeah, it was covered. But it was always there within us. And this brings us to the final stone in the Parsha. Jacob establishes a family. He outfoxes Laban. He bears 12 children. He has a very formidable empire. And he takes leave of Laban. And when they finally amicably part, Jacob erects a stone monument between him and Laban. And he instructs his children to join him in building this monument and forever parting ways with Laban, in joining him in severing the association with Laban. This is the third step of Jacob's transformation. After the planning stage and the execution stage, he moves on to step number three, and that's to secure what he built. After Jacob built his legacy, it's important to not forget about building a protective moat to ensure that what you built will, in fact, last. The Torah, maybe maybe it's not so important, right? You may ask the question, why is it important to tell us that, well, Jacob gave it one name. He called it Galaid. And Laban, well, he assigned a different name. Why is that matter important? Why is that factoid necessary? And the commentaries tell us that this shows us that Jacob did not alter his language. He was away from his home for more than 20 years. And you would imagine that he would adapt, he would assimilate, he would acculturate to the ways of Laban, to the language, to the culture. Jacob never forgot where he came from. He never forgot his roots. He never forgot what he was there to do. This is a critical part of Jacob's transformation. He maintained his presence of mind to stick to the task, to realize that I'm here, it's exile, I'm trying to get back, and to focus on that, and not to get too caught up in his temporary home. Don't get too distracted in the job to not forget the objective. The commentaries point out a very unusual curiosity in the Parsha. In the entire Parsha's Vayetze, 148 verses, there is not a single paragraph break. It's one of the longest Parshas in the Torah, and there are no paragraph breaks in the Torah scroll. Now, just to get a sense of how unusual that is, the entire Torah is 5,845 verses, and there are 669 paragraph breaks. So if you do the math, there's an average of a paragraph break every 8.73 verses. And thus, if Parshas Vayetze had just been average, you would expect it to have 17 paragraph breaks, and it has exactly zero. I think this is part of the lesson. Jacob is still speaking Hebrew. He's still in the mindset. He's still in the outlook of where he was when he left. He didn't settle down. He didn't get used to his new environment. There was no breaks. There was no loss in focus. It was a mission. And Jacob approached his mission with relentless 
dogged, fanatic determination, never forgetting for a second where he came from and what he was here to do. And that's part of how Jacob was able to shepherd his mission from start to finish. And he made sure to get his children to participate. And the Torah emphasizes that. He, t- he takes some stone, he tells his brothers slash sons to do so as well. How do you perpetuate a legacy? How do you ensure that all the hard work that you do doesn't just evaporate? Jacob made sure at the end of the journey, made sure that his children are part of this. When he said goodbye to his long-term adversary Laban, part of this third stone process is to make sure that his children are on board. The legacy of Jacob would not be complete if it just ended with him. It's necessary to have it continue with his children. Only then does it have generational and eternal continuity. The Hebrew word for stone is evan. Evan is a blend of two other words. It's an amalgamation of av and ben, father, son. The third stone is Jacob's ultimate legacy. It's a mission that endures from generation to generation. It outlives just the life of the father. It continues. What is this cornerstone that Jacob is trying to build? It's something which is an heaven, a father, son, an eternal, continuing, perpetuating mission and legacy. For this reason, we place headstones atop a person's grave. When a person's accomplishments and legacy are laid out, it it should be a stone monument to symbolize that that person's contribution and legacy, it's not just a one and done. It's perpetuated onwards. It continues with their children and the people that they influenced in this lifetime. Our objective is not just to build a legacy, but to be a builder, a contributor that will impact the generations onward. And this is how Jacob punctuated his journey with his ideals, with his values, with his priorities firmly ingrained in his children. Thus concludes Jacob's legacy and mission in our Parsha. There's a three-act play here. Jacob starts off the Parsha with nothing. And it starts off with a dream. He's planning big, and he's planning long-term, and he's approaching his task with unwavering conviction. And then in the middle stage, everyone else sees obstacles and blockades. He sees opportunity. He sees the well. And he proceeds to get to work. And over the course of the entire mission, he doesn't take a break. He doesn't stop for a breather, he maintains superlative focus. And when he wraps up, 
he made sure that what he built will endure to the next generation. And thus, Jacob is truly worthy of being a foundation stone in Evan. The Av-Ben connection will continue. Jacob's story is told in our parsha, but this is not just the story of Jacob the individual. Everything that happens to our antecedents is supposed to be a guidebook for us, their children, collectively as a nation, but also for us as individuals. And again, like Jacob and our parsha, we're far from home. We have a body and soul, and the soul is a stranger, is a foreigner. It comes from heaven on high. Our soul is hewn from beneath God's heavenly throne. What it is doing here is a mystery. What's someone like you doing in a place like this? That question could be asked of our soul. Our soul is in exile. It's in a very foreign and hostile environment. And it gets here and everyone's speaking Aramaic. Everyone's talking a different language than the language of the soul. The language of the body here is dominant. And Jacob pulled off what few people did to always maintain that Hebrew, to always perpetuate the language of the soul, even in a very foreign and hostile environment. Like Jacob, we have a legacy to build. We're empty-handed. And we're expected to return in peace with something to show for our time here. We have to build a legacy that will endure forever. Our soul is responsible to return to its source, laden with mitzvahs, with Torah, that will benefit it for eternity in the spiritual worlds. God sent us here to uncover those wellsprings of greatness that he implanted within us. And of course, there is the Yitzhahara. And it's designed to make it difficult for us to accomplish that mission. There's a stone, so to speak, at the top of our wellspring. But actually, it's for our betterment because that stone determines the capacity that we have to accomplish in this world. And should we overcome it, that stone will serve as an indicator of our greatness. And how Jacob did it is how we must do it. We start and we plan big and we think long-term and we move ahead with conviction. In the implementation stages, we recognize that those challenges, those proverbial stones capping our well, they're there for our benefit to enable us to build a lasting legacy. Like Jacob, we're told to look and see the well. Yes, there's a stone, but don't get overwhelmed by that stone inhibiting our progress. Focus on the mission. And don't get distracted. Don't take any unnecessary detours and make sure that we cement our accomplishments by ensuring that it does not end with us. We perpetuate it onto our children. We perpetuate it onwards. It is permanent. Our parasha begins with Jacob leaving his homeland. At the end, he has a veritable empire. When he returns home, 
He is at the helm of an enormous dynasty. What a legacy Jacob built in exile. Now we know how he did it. Now we know how we can do the same. This was a retro edition of the Parsha podcast. It was a delight. We saw a recurring theme in the Parsha. And that can serve as a structure that can be very helpful for us. Our Parsha is self-contained. It's a complete story from beginning to end. It's Jacob's Odyssey in Haran. It starts off on the ground floor and it goes all the way to the top of the marvelous edifice, the house that Jacob built. Along the way, we have the stones. These milestones that highlight the three steps of Jacob's transformation. May we all be so fortunate to do the same in our own lives. We now know what we need to do. Let's rock and roll. I thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. A retro edition of the Parsha Podcast. Of course, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I'm sitting in the glorious Torch Center in Houston, Texas. We thank you all for your support of the great work of Torch. Listen to all the podcasts, including the new edition of the Jewish History Podcast. Have an incredible day. A splendid rest of your week. An edifying and elevating and invigorating Shabbos upcoming. And please, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again in good health and in great spirits next week.